Once upon a time, there were three brave knights that sat at a table and listened as their prince spoke to them. My father, the king, will give the hand of my sister to the first of you who can prove himself worthy. The prince paused to let the men take in the news. He looked at their faces, faces weathered from miles and scarred from battles. They were the greatest warriors in the kingdom, and each of them wanted to marry the daughter of the king. The king had promised each a chance, a test, to see which was worthy of his daughter, and now the time for the test had arrived. The test is a journey, the prince explained, a journey to the king's castle by way of the forest. Each of the knights felt a stab of fear as they thought about these words. They knew the danger of the forest, a dark and deadly place. Parts of it were so thick with trees that sunlight never found the ground. And it was also the home of the Hope Knots, small, sly, evil creatures with yellow eyes. They weren't strong, but they were clever, and they were many. Some people believed that Hope Knots were lost travelers, changed by the darkness, but no one really knew for sure. Will we travel alone, Carlisle asked, a strange question to come from the strongest of these three knights. His fierce sword was known throughout the kingdom, but even this steely soldier knew better than to travel through the perilous forests alone. You may each choose one person to travel with you all the way to the castle. But the forest is dark. The trees make the sky black. How will we find the king's castle? This time it was Alan who spoke. He was not as strong as Carlisle, but much quicker. He was famous for his speed, leaving trails of confused enemies as he escaped them by ducking into trees and scampering over walls. But he knew that quickness is worthless if you have no direction. So he asked, how will we find the way? The prince nodded reached into his sack and pulled out an ivory flute. There are only two of these, he explained, this one and another in the possession of the king. He put the instrument to his lips and played a soft, sweet song. Never had the knights heard such soothing music in their lives. My father's flute plays the same song. His song will guide you to the castle. Three times a day, the king will play from the castle wall. Early in the morning at noon, and again in the evening. Listen for him. Follow his song, and you will find the castle. There is only one other flute like this one. Only one, said the prince. And you and your father play the same music. That is correct, the prince answered. This time, it was Cassidon who was speaking. He was known not for his strength or his speed, but for his alertness. He saw what others missed. He knew the home of a traveler by the dirt on their boots. He knew the truth of a story by the eyes of its teller. And he could tell the size of a marching army by the number of birds scattered in flight. The prince cautioned, consider the danger of the forest and wisely choose the one who will be with you on your journey. And so they did. At dawn, the three knights mounted their horses and entered the forest. Beside each rode their chosen companion. Meanwhile, at the king's castle, the, the days of waiting passed by slowly. All the people knew of the test, and all wondered which knight would win the princess. Three times a day, the king sent his song soaring into the trees of the forest, and three times a day, the people stopped their work to listen. After many days and countless songs, a watchman spotted two figures stumbling out of the forest. None could tell who they were because they were too far from the castle, but they had no armor, no horses, and no weapons. Hurry, the king commanded to his guards, bring them in, give them medical treatment and food, but don't tell anyone who they are. Dress the knight as a prince, and we will see their faces tonight at the banquet. He then dismissed the crowds and told them to prepare for the feast. That evening, a joyful spirit filled the banquet hall. Every table, the people tried to guess which knight had survived the perilous forest, and finally, the time had come to present the winner. The king signaled, the people became quiet, and he began to play his flute. Once again, the ivory instrument sang, and the people turned to see who would enter. Many thought it would be Carlisle, the strongest. Others felt it would be Alan, the swiftest. But it was neither. 
The knight who survived the journey, as many of you have guessed, was Cassidon, the wisest. He strode quickly across the floor, following the sound of the flute one final time, and bowed before the king. When instructed to tell of his journey, he began, the, the hope knots were crafty. They attacked us, but we fought back. They took our horses, but we continued on. What nearly destroyed us, though, was something far worse. And what was that, asked the king. They imitated. They imitated. Yes, my king, they imitated. Each time the song of your flute would enter the forest, a hundred flutes would begin to play. All around us we heard music, songs from every direction, so similar in sound that it became nearly impossible for me to distinguish the right song. I do not know what became of Carlisle and Allen, but I do know this. My strength and speed did not help me to hear the right flute. So how did Cassidon do it? How was he able to discern the true song of the king even when he was surrounded by a forest of deception and falsehood? If you're curious as to how exactly this story ends, we will revisit it at the end of the sermon. As Justin mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit impressed on him the wisdom to bless this young, inexperienced preacher with some bonus verses for today's message. And while the task of explaining God's word faithfully and winsomely weighs heavy, I am trusting that same spirit to administer his grace in the scriptures to all of us this Lord's Day morning. So pray with me to that end as we continue our worship together. Father, we come before you with nothing in our hands to bring. God, we are helpless, we are weak, and we completely cast ourselves on the mercy that you have reserved for your chosen. Give us grace this morning to hear your truth, to commit ourselves to your truth, to protect your truth, but to devote ourselves to the truth overflowing in acts of love to you and love for one another and love for the world. God, even now as I have a preoccupation in my inner being, in my flesh, to rely on my own strivings and contrivances as, my, as I am tempted to think that there's so much more I could have done with this message, Lord, I pray for your word to go forth, and as you promise us in Jeremiah, that it would not return void. You know what you're doing, and so to that end, we pray that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective and greater than the one that is preached. It must be. So we pray this in your matchless name to bring us home and make us like yourself. Jesus Christ, amen. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be spending most of our time in verses 3 through 11. This is too big. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, feel free to pick up one of the black ESVs uh, they're located on the left side of the pew back in front of you. We're going to be on page 932. If you were with us last week, we began our series in 1 Timothy with two questions. Is the local church marked by truth? And is the local church marked by love? This theme will continue throughout the book of 1 Timothy, and indeed, it takes center stage this morning. That the true strength of the church lies in her humble commitment to the truth and her willingness to exercise that truth in love. Justin taught us of the God-saturated greeting that Paul gives to Timothy, how each verse is chock full of God's holy character and his mighty work being done in Paul being done in Timothy, being done even in the Ephesian church as they receive mercy, grace, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so last week we focused on God's work as the sender and recipient, in the sender and recipient of 1 Timothy. This week we concentrate on the purpose Paul has in writing this letter to Timothy and the problem which quite clearly affected the church in Ephesus. So on the heels of the God-saturated greeting, we find in the text before us a gospel-saturated directive, a gospel-saturated directive. 
In these verses, Paul is going to charge Timothy with a responsibility. And in that responsibility, he will teach us five gospel realities that are essential for a church to display God's glory. These five realities will serve as our sermon points. And for note takers, I'm going to list them now, but expand upon them as we study the text together. In other words, I'm going to give you half of the points now and the rest later, if that makes sense. We will learn the gospel reality of the charge of gospel ministry, the aim of gospel teaching, the divergence from gospel love, the need of gospel power, and the measure of gospel truth. The charge of gospel ministry, the aim of gospel teaching, the divergence from gospel love, and the, the need of gospel power, and the measure of gospel truth. Read with me in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. If you had four pages to write a young pastor and give him a theology of ministry that would last a lifetime and impact literally millions, where would you start? What would be the first thing that you would say to him? I'll bet you it wouldn't be what Paul said to Timothy. I can see you start off by saying, now, Timothy, love your people. Love them like they're your own. Love them with all your heart. That would be good counsel. That would be biblical counsel. Paul's going to give that counsel to Timothy elsewhere, but that's not how he starts. You could say, Timothy, whatever else you do, pray for your people. Love them so much that you're praying for them constantly. Lift them up before the throne of God in prayer. Realize that your intercession for them will be crucial in their growth and grace. That would be good counsel. It would be biblical counsel. Paul's going to give that counsel to Timothy later on, but that's not how he starts. Paul says something that you and I probably never would have started with. Oppose false doctrine. Falsehoods abound everywhere. And so, Timothy, point number one, the charge of gospel ministry is to teach truth and refute error. This is a charge he gives to Timothy. Let's look at how he begins. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. We realize immediately that the charge given isn't a new charge. In fact, it's actually already been given to Timothy. And Paul is, in effect, refreshing his standing orders, as I already urged you. In fact, the word remain here is being used in its infinitive form. Paul isn't just commanding Timothy, stay at Ephesus. He's not just flexing his apostolic authority, even though he could. No, there's, there's a personal weight behind these words. Keep on staying. As I told you then, so I tell you now. Keep on staying. There is a tender and gentle admonishment for Timothy to endure whatever he is going through. And this is, this is so important. It's really important for us to understand the rest of 1 Timothy and all of the pastoral epistles. When the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture, he didn't just inspire the writings, he sovereignly ordained their context. Paul doesn't just say to Timothy, doesn't say anything to Timothy in a vacuum. Paul is speaking to a real human with real struggles and understandable discouragements. Timothy likely felt despair, disparaged and ridiculed being in his position at such a young age, or Paul wouldn't have told them in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. He likely felt weary and well-doing, as Paul told him later on in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, verse 12. Fight the good, chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Presently, in our text before us, we see this. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Well, who are these certain persons? Paul's directive seems to imply that these persons already have a platform to teach, meaning that these men were among Timothy's number. 
They weren't just churchmen that were believing false doctrine. No, these were elders in the church that were actively promoting false doctrine. Remember Paul's teary-eyed words to the Ephesians from Acts chapter 20 last week? Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in after you, not coming among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away from them. From among the very plurality of men that Timothy should be able to link arms with and trust in arose false teachers that set their teaching against his. Timothy probably felt unspeakably alone and ready to leave. To which Paul tenderly urges him, stay on, endure. This church needs you. Do not neglect the gift you have. We should think about Paul's example here whenever we're inclined to offer scathing critique to our elders. They are real people with real struggles and understandable discouragements. And while 1 Timothy will show us the importance of refuting unfaithful leaders, faithful elders are still human, just like you and me, and we should be earnest to tenderly encourage them the way we would want to be encouraged. It's not an easy job. And so Timothy is urged by Paul to command certain persons, leaders in his church, not to teach any different doctrine. And now the exact body of belief that these false teachers were committing themselves to isn't really offered to us or spelt out in the book of 1 Timothy. But, but honestly, that's not really how false teaching worked in the first century. You didn't just have a book of, hey, this is the false teaching I'm teaching, then they wouldn't be there. The true faith had the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit and the special authority of the apostles to drive its teaching. Wolves don't have that kind of power. The best they could do was dress themselves up in shepherd's clothing, take on, take what was accurately being taught and distort it, obscure it, confuse it to their own wicked ends. So we don't really have a comprehensive theology of what these evil men were teaching, but rather some obvious indications that it wasn't in line with the true teachings of Christ. These specific heresies weren't named or codified in any meaningful way yet, and they wouldn't be until the next century, but they're simply in their beginning stages of parasitic life, leeching off the pure theology of the cross and leading people astray. And Paul's cognizant of this. The word he uses in this text, any different doctrine, it's one word, and it's meant, many believe it to be a word coined by Paul himself. He pretty much takes the word for good teaching or sound theology or healthy doctrine, and he mashes it together with the word for different, hetero. Timothy charged these men to not teach anything different from the doctrine that you know to be true and from God. There is a focused, central body of truth that Paul believes to be of supreme importance. He tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of medium importance, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the truth of the gospel. Teach this, Timothy, and nothing but this. If there's anything that doesn't align with this, oppose it. Now, are there specific indications as to what ideas were being taught that deviated from sound doctrine? I, I, I do believe there are. And I think that there are mainly two. First, there seems to be an unhealthy preoccupation with Old Testament rules, such that it was being argued that adherence to these statutes was a prerequisite for receiving Jesus. You want salvation in Jesus' name? Well, that's, that's great, but, and he's, he's awesome, but first, you need to be circumcised, and you need to obey Jewish dietary law. And also, you must do this, and you must do that. You must, you must, you, 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 until suddenly you have something that is distinctly not the gospel. 
but a perversion of truth that worries more about the perfection of one's bootstraps than the free gift that Christ secures for those who would trust in him. The second unhealthy preoccupation that we see in the text is this preoccupation, this obsession with finding secret knowledge in the scriptures, that true spirituality was reserved only for those who could find hidden meanings and receive special revelation and unravel new things about God that no one has ever seen or heard before. Both of these ideas end up being religions of self And we'll see many evidences of them in the coming verses. As as a matter of fact, verse 4 gives us indications of both. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In the same way that the church in Acts 2 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so Paul wants the Ephesian church to devote themselves Not to myths or genealogies, which is what these false teachers were doing. They they say, "Let, let let me see if I can find some sort of special new lesson or myth from the scriptures so that I can demonstrate myself as spiritually superior. Or let me comb through this genealogy in the books of the Chronicles so that I can find some sort of justification for why you, Ephesian Gentile, should rigorously follow the Torah in order to follow Christ. Mythology in this context has to do with what Paul says, speculation rather than revelation. And I wonder how often we can be guilty of this, searching for some spiritual sign or or writing in the sky from God, speculating about bizarre abstractions when God has given us everything we need in his word. Spoken word artist Odd Thomas comments in his uh, beautiful eulogies, 2013 track, Symbols and Signs, he, he, he orates, sometimes what we believe to be true from our spirit, supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke, a series of events that's used to distract us from the truth. But I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God through his word has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. There is this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees these signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say that the mark of a mature man is the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and his perspective plans. As we learn when we were back in 2 Peter, in the Christian faith, more often than not, the main things are the plain things. The kind of thinking that the false teachers are promulgating don't provide any answers to anything. They only provide more questions, more speculation, as they obscure and distort the true nature of the gospel. They don't promote, as Paul points out, the stewardship from God that is by faith. I love how the ESV uses the word stewardship. If you're in the NAS, you you see the administration of God. Older translations would use the work of God or the edification of God, and the meaning is clear. This is what God does in a sinner's life. It means that God is in the business of salvation, and this is what he is doing, stewardship, administration, not just in us, but through us. And the false teacher's doctrine is not promoting that. And don't even miss that last piece. The stewardship from God that is by faith, that is by trusting on another, leaning on a substitute. It's not by works. It's not by anything that you can do or anything that you can contribute. It is by faith, by looking to another and believing in the trustworthiness of God that he has taken your penalty. So the long and the short of Timothy's charge, as I'm looking at the time, more the long of it, is that... uh, his charge to Timothy is to teach and correct. He was saying it is pastorally important for a Christian minister not only to teach the truth, but also to inoculate his people against error and to help them understand the difference between the two. Whenever a false teaching is exposed to us, our commitment to sound doctrine should be to attack it like white blood cells attack a disease. 
Our palate should be so steeped in the gospel that anything that contradicts it would immediately taste bitter to us. Because, friends, the truth doesn't win by just being put out there. We try to convince ourselves of that sometimes. We often live under the illusion that if we just put the truth out there and we don't confront anybody, it'll do just fine. History has shown otherwise. We must contend for the faith. We must defend the truth. Some of our greatest heroes are men who stood up and not only announced the truth, but they also said, what is being taught here is wrong, and it must be opposed. Timothy teach them to not teach falsely or listen to those who do. The charge of gospel ministry is to teach truth and refute error. Paul pleads with us to have this commitment to truth because he sees in a way that we often do not that it is only by the uncorrupted truth of God and his word that we can be formed into the likeness of Christ. Nothing else can do it. When we are drawn away from truth, we are drawn away from the source of our holiness, which leads us to the second gospel reality. The aim of gospel teaching is love. The aim of gospel teaching is love. Read with me in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is here giving us a glorious summary of the goal of his discipleship program. Excuse me. He tells you here that in the local congregation, the ministry of truth aims for this goal in you, love. The ministry of truth is not designed simply to get you to sign a card or to say a prayer. The ministry of truth in the local congregation is not simply to arm you with biblical facts. It's not simply designed to get you to believe certain things. The ministry of truth is that and more than that. It is to produce in you love. And now it's, it's important to dwell here for a moment. There are many Christian churches that will rightly diagnose true, genuine love as something that is missing from their fellowship. People will say, now, what we really need to focus on here is love. But notice that Paul is pointing out to us that love is produced by truth, by adhering to it by practicing it, by obeying it. How do we produce love in a fellowship? It is by the means of the truth of God when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and so burns it into our hearts that it overflows into love to God and love to neighbor. See, Paul is doing something very clever here, especially with regards to the, the false teaching of these, of these elders that are have this preoccupation and fixation with the law. He's pointing to something that Jesus said. If, if you want to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 22, a teacher comes to Jesus, and he was a lawyer. Not like our lawyers that devote themselves to civil law, criminal law, whatever kind of law before a court, but a religious teacher of the law, the, 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 the revealed attributes and commandments of God. He was a trained theologian who understood the instruction or the Torah or the law of the Old Testament better than just about anybody and thus taught the people how to understand their Torah. He came to Jesus, Matthew 22, verses 35 and 36, and he asks Jesus a question. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? In other words, Jesus, in all the instruction that God has given to us in the Old Testament, what is the most important thing? And Jesus' response is absolutely breathtaking. He sums it all up in one. He says, love God and love your neighbor for the whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the law hangs on this. Paul is confirming that here. He's saying that the goal of all of our instruction, all of our teaching, is to produce the kind of Christian gospel, that kind of Christian gospel love for God and for neighbor. And so he teaches us here that there are three interior realities to this second point. I'm losing you. 
It's the goal of apostolic preaching is to see you transformed and living a life of love, then these three things produce the circumstances that enable you to love that way. He tells us that this love is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. See, Paul is doing exactly what Jesus did with the religious teachers of the law in his time. He's pointing them not to the outward acts of the body or the religious acts or the righteous acts, but pointing them to the heart, to the inside. When Paul speaks about the heart, he's not talking about emotion as over against intellect. That's how we often use it. Mind equals intellect. Emotion equals heart. When Paul says heart, he's speaking about the deepest part of who you are. And in that deepest part of who you are, there are at least four things. Your mind, your believing, your conscience, and your will. That volitional force that helps you to make choices and decide things. Not your emotions as much as your desires and your affections the things that are most deeply important to you. And Paul says when we preach, we preach truth to the heart, to the mind, to the conscience, to the will, to the affections. We minister to the whole person, the whole man. We don't just aim for the outward responses or activities. We preach the heart, the mind, the conscience, the will, the desires with a view to cultivating gospel love. So let's break apart each of these interior realities first. The pure heart. As we said before, the Paul, Paul, the heart is the very center of the person. Why would we need a pure heart before we can love? Because we're wicked. And our heart, by its nature, is deceitful above all things. Our hearts are corrupted and depraved and far from God. I think it's providential that we just ended our stint in the Psalms through to Psalm 51. David thought that he was in love with a woman named Bathsheba, and he took her impulsively, though she was married to another man, and he had him killed, and he stayed behind in war, and he lied, and he, and he, he, he thought he was in love, but he wasn't. Love must come from a pure, pure heart. That's why when he was convicted of that sin, he prayed, create in me a clean heart. Why? Because he knew that he couldn't love God or love neighbor properly unless God did a prior work in his heart. That's one of the reasons why we can't be saved by this love. We're not saved by this love. Salvation produces in us this love. So David prays for a clean heart. You can't love unless God, by the grace of his spirit, has given us a new heart and a new spirit. Secondly, a good conscience. Uniformly in the New Testament, this refers to an awareness of rightness and wrongness according to God's standards. And, and along with that, a self-awareness of where we are right and wrong in relation to him. We'll get into this in the coming verses, but you're not flying by the seat of your pants. You know what's true, you know what's right, and you know what's wrong. Many people today argue that love doesn't obey things like arbitrary, prefabricated standards like the Bible and, law and standards imposed on us, on us by society. Love just does the best thing best for you. Paul reminds us here that there is no such thing as love apart from truth because love knows that there is a right and there is wrong. Again, I think of David. I'm sure that David felt that a relationship with Bathsheba was a supremely good thing to do. I'm sure that he felt like a good king staying behind in war, that he felt like he needed to cover up his sin. And yet, in the end, it was shown to him to be a very wicked thing. So a good conscience is necessary for us to love because love is not just doing whatever we feel like in the spur of the moment. Love is expressing the standards of God in our treatment to one another. And so you need a good conscience to do that. And the third interior reality, a sincere faith. Not lazy assent to the doctrines of the gospel, or merely a formal profession of faith, but a wholehearted embrace of the promises of God in the word of God. These things are necessary for love. And so Paul says the goal of our instruction is love. 
The goal of our discipleship is to see Christians loving God and neighbor from the deep center of the human person. We always aim for the glory of God. We always aim for the conversion of the sinner. We aim for the sinner to trust in Jesus Christ alone. But what is our desire in preaching to the Christian? Of committing ourselves to truth as a believer? What is our desire in discipleship? It's to see us become more like our Heavenly Father. And what is our Heavenly Father like? 1 John 4.16. God is love. The third uh, overarching reality we see is the divergence from gospel love is vanity. The divergence from gospel love is vanity. Here Paul takes what he said in verse 5 and shifts it to show that these false teachers are not in alignment with the truth in verse 3 or even the love in verse 5. Read with me. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul's great point in these two verses is simply this. False teaching will always fail to edify, to promote the stewardship from God that is by faith. And straying from gospel, the gospel love outlined in verse 5 will only end in destruction. So he says in verse 6, there are some men who claim to be teachers of the law who are straying from that very teaching. Some men, he says, this refers to the false teachers about which he's already warned us, They've wandered away into vain discussions. And notice the contrast. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The false teachers have none of those things. Fruitfulness, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, versus fruitlessness. They speculate. They, they talk. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They they speak confidently about things that they don't even understand, and it doesn't edify the people of God. You can't edify the people of God unless you're teaching people the truth of God, and you can't teach people the truth of God unless God has worked his truth in you to produce love for him. Furthermore, if you notice in verse 6, he even says that their lives show that they don't understand the law of God. Look at the interesting thing he says in verse 6. For certain persons swerving from these, just like we looked at in Matthew chapter 22, where the summation of all the law and the prophets is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These false teachers have swerved from those inner resources that produce love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith. They've swerved. They've Ronnie is going to cover this in, in a couple of weeks, but, but their end is destruction. It's shipwreck. And as we see in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. The, the end of divergence from the gospel is vanity and destruction. And so they've committed themselves to this obsession with the law of doing God's work, doing God's law to the letter so that you can be made righteous before him. And Paul has had enough of it. In verse 8, we see the fourth overarching reality. The need of gospel power is great. The need of gospel power is great. It's in these verses that, that Paul puts forth for us a positive and accurate teaching of the law. These men are distorting the law. I want you to know what it's for. Here we see the tr its true nature and function. These men who were teaching in Ephesus didn't understand it, even though they claimed to. Now let me understand to, let me explain to you what the law is and how it works. See, they were devoting themselves to a legalistic interpretation of the law. Do these things and it will make you righteous. And Paul comes up in verse 8 and says, that's not what it's about at all. 
This legalism is a legalism that doesn't understand the necessity of God's grace in order that we might obey the law freely. The legalism says, how can man be right with God? Obey the law. So Paul begins by saying, we know that the law is good. It's important for us to understand that Paul is an anti-law. A lot of people read this passage and think that what Paul is saying is that the law isn't for Christians or it doesn't apply to us or simply because we're not under it, we don't have to think about it. No. Every time you hear Jesus say something like he says in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandments are to love God and love neighbors, he's simply summarizing for you what the whole goal and focus of the law is. He's not against the moral law of God. In fact, he's, about in, he's in these verses, he's about to summarize all of the Ten Commandments. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. If you look at these series of parallel terms in verse, in verse 9, the, the, the law is for the lawless and the disobedient. The, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. All of those adjectives seem to connotate an offense against an infant, infinite and majestic deity. So that covers the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Honor the, honor the Sabbath. And then he picks it up with the fifth commandment. He says for those who strike their fathers and mothers, the, the ultimate dishonoring of your father and mother, for murderers, those who take another's life, for the sexually immoral or men who practice homosexuality, the, the contortion and distortion of God's good design for sexual intimacy, the, for enslavers, the, the ultimate offense against property rights and theft, liars, perjurers, those who bear false witness, and whatever else is contrary to false doctrine. Now, we, we don't see covetousness in this text, but Paul would actually illuminate for, that for us in Romans 7. If you want to flip there, in verse, starting in verse 7, he even helps us exposit the text before us. What, shall, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, all kinds of, of ways in which I seek after something that is not my own. So why did the law need to be written down? Paul answers it for us to expose sin. The law is meant to be this mirror that reflects the holiness and the goodness and the justice of God in contrast to your unholiness, your wickedness, and your sinfulness. Therefore, it, it can't be the answer to sin. That's what Paul's trying to get across to these Ephesian believers. It's there because of the problem of sin not as the final answer to it. It's there to show us our need of grace, to cry out for mercy as David did. Charles Spurgeon would refer to it as a, as a farmer's, to himself as a farmer's field, and this is how that farmer used the law. He said, my heart was fallow and covered with weeds, but on a certain day the great farmer came and began to plow my soul. Ten black horses were his team, and it was a sharp plowshare that he used, and the plowers made deep furrows. The Ten Commandments were his team, were those black horses, and the justice of God, like a plowshare, tore my spirit. I was condemned, undone, destroyed, lost, helpless, hopeless. I thought hell was before me. 
Non-Christian friends, if you are in this room and that sounds like bleak news to you, it's because it is. The law exposes for us because our consciences are so seared we don't even understand our own sinfulness. It shows us how far we have strayed from God's good design. And the indictment for that sin is death. But, in, but a, a sin against an infinite and holy majesty can't be satisfied by a finite person. It must forever be paid over and over. And God is just and good to do that. This is bad news indeed. But as Spurgeon says, after the plowing came the sowing. God who plowed the heart in mercy made it conscious that it needed the gospel. And then the gospel seed was joyfully received. There is an indictment that we have against us. And God demands payment. It will either be payment for an eternity of suffering in hell, or it will be in the suffering of a substitute. The only person who could fulfill that righteous requirement that the law laid down for us was God. And so Jesus came, lived that perfect death that fulfilled the law and all its commands, suffered like us, and died for us, rising again on the first day, paying that payment that we incurred for ourselves. I would challenge you, if this is the first time hearing this, to consider why you are here this morning. Perhaps it's because someone drug you here. Maybe it's your parents. Perhaps you actually do think that the adherence to religious religiosity and going to church and reading your Bible is what puts you right before God. It's not. It's faith in a substitute who would suffer for you. Paul is not saying everything there is to say about the law here, but he is pointing out that it doesn't solve the problem of sin. So reach out and cast yourself on the Savior who has become the solution for sin. True biblical teaching does not mistake the nature and use of the law. It shows us what true righteousness looks like, but it cannot save us. And these teachers don't understand that. So Paul points out here how false teaching misunderstands the nature and use of the law. Finally, in verse 11, I'll leave you with the final and heavily condensed point due to my long-windedness. He says, end of verse 10 and verse 11, he says, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which with, with which I have been entrusted, here, Paul waxed poetic about what exactly sound doctrine is standardized to. Our final point is the measure of gospel truth is Christ himself. Sound or wholesome teaching is a word that Paul will use over and over in this letter. This is just our first taste of it. It's a phrase that reminds us that true biblical teaching leads to spiritual health. It's sound teaching, wholesome teaching, healthy teaching. We're not just teaching so that you'll know more things. We're teaching that you will so that we will be edified with the word of God, producing love because Jesus has done a work in us. It all comes back to him. What the gospel tells me is not simply that there is a just God, but that there is a merciful God and that there is something that I that I learn only in the gospel, that that merciful God will show grace to those who repent and trust in his son. Again, if you have not heard of this, talk to one of us. Jesus Christ, at the very least, with the claims of what we say he has done, deserves your investigation. So it's not, so how, how does this apply to us as Christians? Is the law gone? No, we, we've, already, we've already established that. The aim of our charge is love so that we can fulfill the law and we're free to live in obedience to it by trusting in Jesus' keeping of the law 
in Jesus' righteousness, in Jesus' holiness. It's Jesus paying the penalty for my sin that makes me right before God and frees me then to live in accordance to the guidance of God's law. I don't need to obey all of the Old Testament commands to the letter. I need Jesus. I don't need to find hidden or, or secret knowledge in the scriptures. I need Jesus. So I commend to all of you, brothers and sisters, beloved, live near Jesus. Do you want to commit yourself to sound teaching and refute error? Live near him who was the embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to produce gospel love, live near him. Sit under his teaching. Have others around you that you can serve and put before yourselves. Live near Jesus when refuting error. Live near Jesus when you're tempted to put yourself under the condemnation of the law. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live near Jesus. As we return to the banquet hall and cast it on the night, explaining the deceptive music of the hope knots, the king asks the question that is on everyone's lips. How did you hear my song through all the other flutes? Because I chose the right companion. And he motioned for his fellow traveler to enter. It was the prince. In his hand, he carried the flute. I knew that there was only one who could play your song exactly like you, the knight explained. There was no one else who I would have trusted to be with me all the way. As we journeyed, he played your song, and I learned it so well that though a thousand false flutes tried to hide your music, I could hear your song above them all. It was with me all the way. Let's pray. Father, again, nothing in our hand we bring. Let your spirit administer what we've learned this morning to us, that we would be committed in a church that is marked by truth and love, that that truth and love would not be divorced, but that we would understand the, the wonders of its marriage, and that the love in us would produce the stewardship from God that is by faith. We love you, and we want to be made more like you. So again, God, we ask, bring, bring us home. We pray this in your matchless name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen.